Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Um, we're going to be in John 18 this morning, uh, starting in verse 12. Um, we've, we've been traveling along in this Passion Week, and everything's starting to happen real fast now. Um, I'm honored to uh, preach this morning as Pastor Dan is, is uh, enjoying the sunshine of Florida with his family. <laughs> no, I'm not jealous. Uh, yeah, I probably am too. <laughs> I'm trying not to break the 10th commandment right now, but, um, but no, it is a real uh, uh, honor for me to be able to, um, to, to discuss and preach God's word this morning. Uh, just to kind of, before we read this text, we're going we're gonna, to uh, be verse 12 through about 27, uh, just to kind of give you like your bearings for a second, you know, this is the night of Jesus' betrayal and arrest. Uh, last week, we looked at this scene in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus has just been arrested. Um, there's this great scene where, you know, they say, uh, actually, he asks them, who are you looking for? And, and they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And uh, he says, I am he, or literally in Greek, just I am. And they all fall over, you know. It's this great scene of God's power and word. It's awesome. And then they get up again and like, uh, who are you looking for? Jesus. Okay, I told you, I am he. Um, and then he lets them arrest him. And he's hours away uh, from being crucified. And so with all this in mind, we come to our, our text this morning. Uh, John 18, starting in verse 12. This is God's word for us today. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to, to Annas. Uh, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest, but Peter stood outside the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servant and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. 
When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you would answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, Malchus, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God remains forever. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, we... We come before you and come before your word and ask, Lord, help us to submit to it. Help us to to gain what you want us to gain. Help us to hear your truth and not our own truth. Help us to see your words and convict us, Lord. And help us to see Christ exalted even in his humiliation. Help me to speak, Lord, today. Even though my voice may be weak, you are strong. And for this, we praise you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. I have to pardon my sniffles this morning. So a few weeks ago, during one of our many snowstorms, snow showers that we've had this winter, my family and I decided to kid watch, kid watch the entire Star Wars series. Yes, all, all, well, all six. We haven't done like the two most recent ones that they've just come out with that are adding on to the thing. I don't think they're ever going to stop, by the way. I'm just letting you know this. But anyway, there's always going to be more stories. Anyway, so we decided to kid watch. Now, does anyone know what I mean when I say kid watch? Uh, so this means you fast forward all the, quote, boring scenes. That's what my kids call boring scenes. And you only uh, fast forward to the exciting scenes. So basically what happens is that when you get to the end of the movie, you have no idea what happened because all the plot development happens in the boring parts. And so you just really know that the good guys won, the bad guys lost, and a lot of stuff got blown up. (laughs) So we watch these movies. We actually skipped two whole movies because my kids thought the whole movies were too boring. Anyway. (laughs) One of my favorite scenes, though, is near the end of The Empire Strikes Back, which pretty much is the most boring movie. If you fast forward the boring stuff, it's like Love Story, Princess Leia, Han Solo, and like Luke trying to train with Yoda. But anyway, you get to the end, and there's this great scene. It qualified as a boring scene, but I was able to keep it going. I do like, oh, let's just a little longer here, kids, a little longer. Now, it's this, this scene where there's this epic lightsaber battle between Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker. You remember they're in the city, city in the clouds, wherever it's called, Lando's place, you know, and they're, it's the very end. They're coming out onto this like skywalk platform thing where it's like if you fall, you're going to go down to this pit of despair, you know, with all these lights around you. And here they are, and Vader is trying to convince Luke to, to do what? To join the dark side, right? You remember this? And, and I actually like transcribed the whole scene here because I thought it was great. I'll, I'll skip over some parts. But so, you know, he's saying, you're beaten. It's useless to resist. Don't let yourself be destroyed. And they saber a little more. 
which if you watch, okay, sorry, you, you watch like the movies that they made in like the 90s and early 2000s, and it's like all of a sudden the lightsaber battles, they become like these ninja lightsabers, which I don't get, but then you go back to the original movies and like, they're just like, it's super slow, but anyway, they're lightsaber battling, Vader cuts off Luke's hand, he's sitting on the edge of this platform, and, uh, and really he's got two options. He either joins Darth Vader, or he jumps, basically, right? Invaders, you know, there's no, there's no escape. Don't make me destroy you. And I'll never join you. Now, now here's the part where I want us to focus in on. Vader, Vader says, if you only knew the power of the dark side, Obi-Wan never told you what happened to your father. Luke, he told me enough. He told me you killed him. You guys all know the next line. No, I am your father. I am your father. And then Luke, you know, no, he's like searching his, no, it's not true. That's impossible. Search your feelings. You know it to be true. No, no. <laughs> Luke, we can destroy the emperor. He has foreseen this. It's your destiny. And this is, this is like the, the, the part that is the cheesiest part in all movies, but also like, great. He goes, join me and together we can rule the galaxy as father and son. Like, okay, come on. Like, could this get any cheesier? Luke looks for a way out. And then come with me, it's the only way. And then what does he do? He jumps, right? He jumps. Now, there's this epic battle, this epic scene. It's, I mean, this, that line, I am your father, has been quoted in who knows how many other movies that have spoofed this, that have not spoofed this. It's just this classic line, right? Now, what we see happening is this great denial in Luke. No way you're my dad. There's no way. And yet he knows it to be true, doesn't he? He knows it to be true. We have this denial. It's actually on multiple levels, right? Luke is denying who his dad is. Vader's in denying how much he can persuade Luke. He thinks he can persuade Luke. He can't. And yet, and, and the, I guess the third denial is all of us movie watchers, because this is just the cheesiest scene ever. And yet we're, we're just in it, right? We're in it. See, as the, the, the old saying goes like this, it's the title of the sermon, denial ain't just a river in Egypt, is the rest of the, the quote. Some people think Mark Twain said it. I don't really know who said it. You see, we are in a world, we are a culture, a people marked by denials. Moment by moment, day by day, we are confronted with opportunities to either accept the truth and live by it or to deny it. Instead, though, driven by fear, uh, driven by our love of pleasure and comfort, or by our need to be approved of, we are more often than not willing to deny what we know to be true about ourselves what we know to be true about the world, what we know to be true about God. You see, there's cultural denials of truth all around us. Denials about the existence of God, denials about the dignity of human life uh, before birth in the womb, denials about biology and gender, denials about human sexuality, denials about the word of God and its authority it ought to have in our lives. You see, for the Christian, there are still denials though. They may be harder to spot, but they're there. When the world seems lost and hopeless and we fail to remember that God is in control and is good and doesn't make mistakes, we have denied God. When we are afraid of owning up to our true identity as children of God because of the trouble that it might bring, we have denied God. Or maybe it's when we are sharing about some exciting news and we leave out the part about how we saw God at work in this news because we're afraid of what the listener might say or what they might think. When we do this, we, just like Peter, deny Jesus. 
You see, in reality, for the Christian, when we deny Jesus, we are denying life, joy. We're denying hope in a future. We are denying the very relationship that brings us peace and acceptance. We're denying the very person who drank the cup of God's wrath so that we wouldn't have to. Our denials prove something, don't they? They prove our inabilities, our inability to save ourselves, our inability to make things better. They prove our inability to course correct ourselves in this world. You see, today we're going to peer into the utter ugliness of humanity, you might say. And yet, I hope and I think and I believe that what we're going to find may not be what you expect. Yes, our text shows the utter failure of Peter. It shows humiliation of Christ, our Savior. And still there is beauty. And still there is grace. And still there is hope. So let's dive in a little bit, starting with this, this idea of an interesting narrative. My son, uh, my oldest son and I are reading a, a series of books written by uh, a singer, songwriter, and author, Andrew Peterson. It's called The Wing Feather Saga. Highly recommend it, no matter what age, uh, whether you're reading it to kids or yourself. It's really, really fantastic. I think we have some of it in our library. And we're in this book, The Monster in the Hollows. And it's basically the story of these three children and, and their, uh, how they find out about their true identity, and then there's adventures they go on and living out that identity. And in this book, The Monster in the Hollows, it's the third book, every other chapter, it switches back and forth between two storylines. And the first time I read it, I was really confused. I was going, what is happening here? Now we're over here talking about, you know, this girl. Now we're over here talking about this boy. Now we're back over here. Every other chapter. A little confusing, right? But the second time I read the story, it took on a whole new level of, of, of insight, of storytelling, because the author intentionally did this to make even more points than just what was written on the page. You see, we come to this text this morning, and, and the, the thinking is, well, what's going on here? None of the other gospel writers break up Peter's denials. They keep it all together. The scene in between with, with Annas interrogating Jesus isn't even in the other three gospels. So is What's happening here? Did John get sloppy? Did the, the manuscript get chopped up and rearranged? Why is his account a little different too? There's a couple things I want us to remember as, as we come into God's word. And anytime you come into God's word, I hope you can remember these things. The first thing is this. All scripture is God-breathed. All of it, all of it, all of it is God-breathed. That means it's all inspired by God. Not just the parts that we like or don't like, all of it. Even, even the way that it's laid out is inspired by God. So this means that for the Christian, we're to take the Bible as the whole counsel of God revealed to us for our good, and it's what is to tell us how to, how to have faith and how to live. The second point that we ought to remember as we come to a text like this where it doesn't, it's sort of all choppy, is to remember the point of the gospel of John. John tells us in John 20, he says in verse 30, John chapter 20, uh, John writes, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. In fact, at the end of John, he actually says, if I wrote down everything, I don't think all the volumes in the world would be able to contain it. Now, it's a little bit of hyperbole, but he's actually saying there's so much that Jesus did, we couldn't write it down. 
But, verse 31, John 20, 31, but these, the things he wrote, the specific things he wrote in this book are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John always has this in mind. In every sentence he wrote in this book, he has in mind, how am I going to lead the reader, the listener, to believe in Christ and have life in his name? I think we should probably have that in mind too as we read these things. So here's the point. First fill in the blank, who's excited? God's word is on purpose. God's word is on purpose. That means you can trust God's word, you can read it as is, you don't need to do like gymnastics and maneuvers to make sense of God's word. Read it in context and trust it. Just, just as a side note, friends, I want to ask you, if you're a Christian today, are you submitting yourself to all of God's word? Do you have some sort of, of, of systematic way that you're reading all of God's word? We're, we're, we like to go to the, like our favorite parts, but then we don't read other stuff. Are you reading all of it? At some point throughout your life, are you making sure you're getting all of God's word digested in your soul? It is our authority. And for those who are here today who may be seeking, asking questions, maybe unbelievers, what is the authority in your life? And how's that working out for you? That's all I'm going to ask. So coming back to this, I want to say this question. Why did John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, structure the narrative in the way he did? This interesting narrative. What does he want us to see? The other day... Um, I just realized both these, this is also going to talk about a snowstorm. Anyway, the, we've had lots of opportunities. The other day, uh, we were watching the snow come down, and, and my wife, uh, who homeschools our kids, reminded the kids, hey, we've been studying snowflakes. Why don't we use this opportunity to kind of catch some snowflakes? Has anyone ever caught snowflakes to study them before? Anybody done that? It's kind of interesting. So what we did was we, we took a, a black piece of construction paper, and we took it outside and let it acclimate. Uh, under this overhang for about 10 minutes got, so that it, the temperature was acclimated, right? And then after 10 minutes, we all went outside and just watched and we stuck it out and caught stuff. And then really quickly, I had my phone ready. We started snapping pictures so that then we could blow the pictures up and study these snowflakes. Did you know that every snowflake is unique? Every snowflake uh, can either be like a hexagon, a cylinder, it, cylinders. You know, snowflakes can be cylinders. That's kind of cool. And they can have six arms. This, this fact I didn't realize, that every snowflake is really a frozen piece of dust. Might make you think twice for your kids are like sticking their face in it, eating it. Yay, it's so good. You're just eating dust. Let me ask you, what would have happened if we used a white sheet of paper? Or even maybe a creamy sheet of paper? Would we have been able to see the snowflakes? Well, no, of course not, right? We needed the contrast, we needed the contrast between, between something dark with this white snowflake coming down so that we could see the reality of that snowflake. You see, ask yourself, why does John go back and forth between Jesus and Peter, between the Savior of the world and this imperfect disciple? For contrast. He does it for contrast. In fact, one scholar notes, and he says it like this, John has constructed a dramatic contrast wherein Jesus stands up to his questioners and denies nothing while Peter cowers before his questioners and denies everything. So we have this 
dramatic contrast, and we have it in four parts. And so let's, let's take a little closer look here. The first part, the arrest. Verses 12 to 14. This band of soldiers, they, they come, they arrest Jesus, they bind him. Keep in mind, the only way Jesus can be arrested and bound is if he lets them. And then they lead him off to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas. Now, you may, if you're, if you're familiar with the other gospel accounts, you might be going, well, who's this Annas guy? I'm confused because Caiaphas, the high priest, so why are they taking him to Annas? So let me give you a little historical background to help you if you have these questions in your mind. Um, Annas was, was considered the patriarch of the high priestly family. Uh, he was the high priest from 6 to about 15 A.D., and no fewer, writes one common commentator, no fewer than five of Annas' sons and his son-in-law Caiaphas held the office at one time or another. So what happened was Rome comes in and they rule in Jerusalem and they remove Annas and they want to appoint their own high priest, a puppet high priest, you might say, one who will, they, they, they can have in their pocket. And so they appoint these other men, and Caiaphas is the one that they've appointed right now. But in reality, most of the Jewish leaders and officials still look to Annas as kind of the, the, he's almost like the godfather of the high priests. We still got to get his input. And so here, John records that they're going to take him first to Annas and then to Caiaphas. It's, It's probable that they even lived in the same house. Now, the interesting thing to notice in this arrest is actually in verse 14. John comments and he says, it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. So what's what's John reminding us of? Well, if you want to thumb back for a second, keep your finger here to John chapter 11, you're going to see what John is referencing. And it's these words that Caiaphas prophesies. If you go back to John 11... Verse 49, and you'll remember that Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead. And now the Jews are going, oh, we really got to kill this guy. The leaders are not happy because he just, he just rose a man from the dead. Now he's going to gather even more of a following and we're going to have even more troubles with the Rome, uh, Roman uh, rulers. They're going to come after us. They're going to take away any power that we think we have. And so Caiaphas in verse 49 says this, uh, John writes, but one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. They just said in verse 48, Rome's going to come in and take away everything. Caiaphas says, you know nothing at all. It's very ironic. John loves irony. You know nothing at all. Who really doesn't know anything? Nor do you understand, verse 50, that it is better for you that one man should die for the people. Let me read that again. You do not understand, it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Verse 51, John comments, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nations. And not only for the nation, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So Caiaphas here means we need, to, we need to put Jesus to death. Because if we don't put Jesus to death, we're going to have really bad political problems with Rome. So we need to put him to death. 
That's what Caiaphas meant when he said that. Jesus is going to be our scapegoat. Our political scapegoat is going to spare the nation of Israel and its leaders from complete Roman takeover. Caiaphas believed that Jesus' death would ensure national survival, that it would set them free for now from Roman overreach. Did you see the irony here? Does anybody see this? It's not that Caiaphas had a wrong view. It was simply that his view was so narrow that he missed the bigger picture. Caiaphas was so busy concerning himself with securing political freedom from a physical power that he missed the far more important kind of freedom that Jesus was offering. Freedom from the power of sin and death. Paul says it in Galatians 5.1, for freedom Christ has set us free. Or Romans 6.22, we're told that the Christian has been set free from sin. This is the kind of freedom that Jesus came to offer, not freedom from this political power of Rome. In fact, Jesus even mentions that in Luke 4. He's quoting out of Isaiah and he says, I have come to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim liberty to the captives. See, here's this contrast, friends, I want us to see, and it's this. Jesus' arrest sets us free. The arrest and binding of Christ sets us free. Free from sin and death, free from burden, free from the striving without ceasing. Anyone tired of striving without ceasing and and feeling like you can't get anywhere? free from the weight of working tirelessly to gain approval and status, it is through the arrest of Jesus that we are set free from this. So that's the first part of this contrast. Let's go to the second part, this first denial. Simon Peter, it's verse 15, back in John 18. So if you want to go back over. Verse 15 here, Peter is following Jesus, so did another disciple. Uh, Traditionally, people take that to be John. There's some argument, but we'll just go with John. It doesn't really matter. That disciple was known to the high priest, so he was able to enter in. But Peter stood outside the door. So then the other disciple goes and, and basically gets permission for Peter to come in. Of course, when Peter is at the door, the girl asks him, don't you know Jesus? Aren't you one of his disciples? I am not, says Peter. And then there's this charcoal fire and, and, and they go up and they warm themselves. Now, I want you to notice a few things besides the blatant denial of Peter. Notice a couple other things. Three other things. One, Peter starts out and he's outside. He's outside of the door. He's outside in the cold. John, the other disciple, gets permission to bring him in. It actually says he was brought in where there was warmth. There's this charcoal fire. I mean, John makes a point to even call it a charcoal fire. The other writers just call it a fire. Why does, just to side note, why does John say it's a charcoal fire? Does anyone know why he's so specific? He's specific because this, this proves that this is a reliable account these kind of details mean that he, 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 he actually was there. This is part of the, the way the author uh, uh, attests to the fact that you can trust what he's writing. And then it, I love the way it ends. Peter also was with them. He started out outside, but he was brought in 
and he's with them, standing and warming himself. Now, where's Jesus during all this time? He's bound, he's under guard, he's not by the fire. He's probably in the cold somewhere by himself alone. Peter, who is outside in the cold, has been brought in at the cost of even denying the fact that he knows Jesus and follows him. Yeah, I'll sacrifice that so that I can come in and be warm. See, here's, here's, here's the irony and the contrast here that we see. Through the aloneness of Jesus in the cold, we are brought into community. We are provided with community through the aloneness of Jesus. Jesus' aloneness provides us community. Think about it, Christian. Once you are outside the fellowship of, of God, separated from Christ, having no hope and without God, Paul says in Ephesians 2, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Through his being alone, we have been brought into community. Jesus was despised and alone so that we might not be. Jesus went through complete and utter aloneness so that we might have fellowship, fellowship with God and fellowship with one another. We go to this third part here of this drama. So we've had the arrest. We see Peter denying Christ, but still brought into community at the cost of, of sinning and, yeah, I don't know the guy. And now we see Jesus being interrogated. He comes in, this is verse 19, the high priest, and he questions Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answers, I haven't, I haven't spoken anything secret, I have spoken openly. I've always taught in public I haven't said anything. He's basically saying here that anything I've said privately has matched what I've said publicly. It doesn't mean he never taught in private. It just means that I haven't said anything different in private than what I've said publicly. Why do you ask? And I, I, the irony here is, is fantastic. Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. Meanwhile, here's Peter who was just asked, are you one of his disciples saying, no, I don't know him. And Jesus saying, ask my followers. Do you see the contrast that John is painting for us? And then what happens? Jesus is struck. Is that how you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong, but if what I said is right, why do you strike me? And then he's sent to Caiaphas. Notice, notice a few things here. Jesus is questioned about his following, about what he said. Ultimately, they are trying to accuse him of blasphemy. That's their charge against him. They're accusing him of the fact that he claims to be God, which if it's true, then it's not blasphemy. But they don't want to believe that. They're in denial about that. Jesus doesn't deny anything. Instead, he points to those who've heard him. He's then struck in the face and he affirms his innocence. Now notice some, some of the things that are ironic in this scene. Jesus is innocent, yet treated as a criminal. And the man, uh, uh, the question that, uh, is this how you would answer the high priest, is just full of irony. 
because Jesus is the ultimate high priest. He is the one, in a sense, that, that is over all the high priests then. Annas and Caiaphas are under his order. And yet, as we're told in Hebrews, the holy and innocent high priest Jesus, as it says in Hebrews 2.17, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That is to, to be a substitute, to lay down his life as a sacrifice for the sins of the people. What are we seeing here? What's, what's the, the contrast that we're seeing? We're seeing this. Jesus accused and abused clears our name. You see, friends, we are the ones who deserve to be treated like criminals. We are the ones who are guilty. We are the ones who rightfully so ought to be punished. And yet, what do we see? It is through the accusation against Christ that we are cleared of wrongdoing. He takes the abuse and, and drinks the cup of wrath so that we don't have to. And so for those who trust in Jesus and who he is, what he did in his life, his death and his resurrection, we believe that your name has been changed from sinner to saint. Your name has been cleared. Now we get to part four. Verse 25, Peter was standing, warming himself. He starts right back up where it left off. He's warm. So they say to him again, you're one of his disciples, aren't you? He denied it and said, I am not. And then we find this relative of Malchus. So Peter just cut off in the garden. Remember, he cut off the ear of Malchus. You know, oh, I'm going to cut your ear off. He's showing this great sign of force. And I'm with Jesus. And now he's, I'm not with Jesus. No, no. And here, the relative of Malchus happens to be at the courtyard. Aren't you, aren't you the guy I saw in the garden? He denies it. And at once, the rooster crows. Luke, Luke tells us that after his third and final denial, that the Lord, Jesus, turned and looked at Peter. So Peter's by this fire warming himself. Jesus is, is over here by himself, maybe being beaten as we're speaking. And, and Jesus looks at him, still in control, still knowing exactly what's happening all around him. And Peter looks and sees that. And we're told at the end of Luke 22, verse 62, Peter goes out and weeps bitterly. You see, what we see here is, is the denial of Peter epitomizes human inability to remain perfectly steadfast, to remain perfectly faithful, to remain perfectly courageous in the face of life and death situations. You see, what, what did Peter deny here? He, he not only denied his relationship to Jesus, he denied God's grace. He denied God's promises that were made to him. He denied any grounds upon which to stand, upon which to earn God's favor. He denied all of this. And he abandons 
Jesus. And because of this, the, the, the ironic thing is we are the ones who deserve to be abandoned. We are the ones who deserve to be left out in the cold. And yet, what do we see? We see that through Jesus' abandonment, we are given acceptance. Jesus was forsaken. Jesus was abandoned, not only by his disciples, but by all men, even his own father in a few hours. And yet it is through his abandonment that the believer, the follower of Jesus is accepted by the father. No longer condemned, no longer uh, cast out, but instead adopted and called son, called daughter. Son and daughters of the most high God. It's through Jesus' abandonment that we are brought and accepted by the Father. You know, these events uh, fulfill words that were spoken 700 years earlier. We find them in Isaiah 53. Uh, if you want to turn there, go ahead. If not, it's fun. I'm just going to highlight a few verses here that, that we see that, that I think cast this in, in, a, in a light for us that, that really shows the contrast. Isaiah 53 verse 3, speaking about this suffering servant, prophesying about Jesus, the Christ. We're, we see in, in Isaiah 53 3 that he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Sounds like denial. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that has led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. If you keep reading in Isaiah, you then see what the result is of this man's sacrifice. Isaiah 54, part of the result is that we go from being ashamed to now having a place of status. We go from disgrace to honor. You who were once widowed, people of God, I am your husband, I am your redeemer, he says. We go from abandoned to now gathered in, Isaiah 54, 7. We go from overflowing with anger and receiving the anger of God to now receiving compassion we go from separated to brought into an eternal covenant of peace, Isaiah 55.3. You see, what we are seeing through all of this is that Jesus bore our griefs or our denials, you might say, in order to give us life, to give us a new identity. Jesus bore our denials, our griefs, our sorrows in order to give us life and a new identity. 
going back to John 18, just one final contrast as we close that I wanted to point out. And it's this contrast between Jesus and Peter and how they answer this question that's really saying, who are you? If you go back to the garden, as I referenced earlier, you see in, in verses five and six, when Jesus is, you know, he says, who are you looking for? They say, Jesus. And he says, I am. I am. And you notice how John records Peter's response. It's different than the way the other gospel writers record Peter's response. They, they record it a little differently. John records it like this, and it's not by accident. And how does he record Peter's response to the question, don't you know this guy? How does, how does Peter respond? I am not. So you have Jesus who says, I am, and Peter who says, I am not. What is John telling us? What he's saying is that Peter and we, when we in our denials, when we say, I am not, we are saying, I am not able to remain faithful to God. And yet we are to hear Jesus saying, I am able to be faithful. I am not powerful to save myself from God's wrath, but Jesus says, I am powerful to save you. The denier says, I am not willing to drink the cup of wrath rightly deserved. And Jesus says, I am willing to drink it. Peter says, I am not courageous enough to bear the consequences of my relationship to Jesus. And Jesus says, I am courageous enough and I'll even take false accusations for you. Peter says, I am not willing to give up comfort and approval. Jesus says, I am. You see, friends, every time we say, I am not, Jesus always responds, I am. For all our denials, Jesus denies us not grace. And in exchange for our faithlessness, Jesus remains faithful. In exchange for our failures, Jesus offers us his success. Why would we deny the truth about our relationship to Jesus if this is true? You know, to come full circle, Luke Skywalker had every good reason to deny the truth about his dad. <laughs> Didn't he? No way I want to be related to this guy. Friends, we have every good reason. In fact, Paul says immeasurable reasons to accept and celebrate and rejoice in the truth about what a relationship with Jesus means. So why would we deny that? In exchange for our I am nots, Jesus says, you are mine. You are my son, my daughter. You are set free. You are not condemned and you are loved. Let's celebrate this. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the glorious truth that though we are a people who live so often in denial, so often rejecting the truth about you and about who we are in you. Lord, we thank you that you stand and remain faithful. And so, Lord, motivate us, encourage us, challenge us, Lord. Give us courage. Give us humble boldness, we ask. For the sake of your kingdom and the glory of the name of Christ. Amen.